Everybody, how's it going? Welcome to This Week in Mormons, the premier Latter-day Saint news podcast. I'm Jeff Openshaw. And I'm Jared Gillins. We're thrilled to have all of you with us this week. Big show this week, lots to talk about. President Nelson breaking the mold and sharing messages about Valentine's Day. Never seen that before. Um, lots of drama happening at BYU, LGBT bills in Arizona, you know, missionaries being evacuated twice during the same mission. Uh, and, you know, there's this little matter of uh, one Brad Wilcox that I guess maybe we'll we'll get into. You know, it's uh, Brother Wilcox's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week. And we'll have plenty to say about that. And of course, last but not least, a new location for Deseret Industries. That's that's our that's our major one. But we won't tell you where until we get there. Uh, got to find, got to hang out for the whole pod. Uh, Jared, how's it going though? What's what's new with you? How's life? I'm I'm good. I'm doing all right, and life's pretty good. Uh, I had a fun weekend hanging out with my in-laws. Um, we watched the Super Bowl together at my Go Rams. Home. Go Rams. Really? Oh, I guess you're from that area. I didn't have like a lot of feelings about it. I mean, the thing is, the Rams played in Anaheim down the street from me hmm. through most of my early youth, but then they left in like 94 or after the 94 season. Is that when so they went to my, St. Louis? They went to St. Louis and the Raiders left at the same time back to Oakland. So I mostly right. grew up in my adolescence without there being professional football in uh, Southern California. So it's just, it wasn't a thing that anybody really cared about. So it's great that they're back so when but you I were a kid what some, were they were they the los angeles rams or were they the los angeles rams of anaheim, of anaheim. that was I, I believe back then they were just the la rams even though they played in orange county yes they played at anaheim stadium which they shared with the angels but back then the angels were the california angels laying right. claim to the entire yeah. state of course of course it's, so it's like yeah. take that dodgers you're from la we've got the entire state covered <laughs> right what do you think of that yeah, so so I, the, I, you know, is the but then the Rams new stadium, which is you know I read was like the cost of it was equal to the GDP of like forty one small countries. Oh, yeah, SoFi Stadium was crazy. Expensive. Yeah, so but that's yeah. actually in Los Angeles now. It's or in Los, it's LA actually, County. It's in Ingle, it's in LA County. It's in Inglewood. In down Inglewood. The way. Okay. Yeah, there used to be the old Hollywood Park Casino, and I think the racetrack's gone too. And they built it down there for reasons beyond understanding, you know. But I guess mm. that's fine. I guess. Do you want to have it down there in Inglewood? Mm-hmm. Yay for them. It's better than where they thought about doing it. They thought about building the stadium for years all over the Southland to try to get the NFL back into California. Hmm. One proposed area was up, not that you know it well, but kind of up near uh, the intersection of the 57 and 60 freeways near like Diamond Bar and Walnut because they thought it was more central to the Inland Empire because there's you know people that very far inland east out there sure. in the Los Angeles area and they wanted to have the stadium be more centrally located. Which, But none of us wanted this because that would have meant the main freeway by my parents' house that runs north-south and leaves Orange County through the hills would be a direct line to the new Oh, NFL and stadium. then you'd have that terrible traffic clogging things up every it, Sunday and it's Monday. already like pretty yeah. bad going through there. So that would have been uh, oh, yeah. a whole lot, I can see whole that. lot of fun. Anyway, so yeah, go Rams. But Cincinnati is also a wonderful city, and I was excited for the Bengals too. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I didn't have a lot invested. I I mean, I'm not terribly invested in the NFL anyway. Um, you know, if the Seahawks, you know, my hometown team, if they're playing, then I'm definitely excited about that. But uh, yeah, I mean, there were two teams that I really didn't care too much about. Uh, but I I, I was kind of rooting for the Bengals foremost because I like an underdog. One of the sure. few is aren't sure. they are they are they the only NFL team that's never won a Super Bowl? I mean they've no, never no, won a Super a few, Bowl. There's a there's a few. There's a few, but there's not many. And so I was like, you know, these guys I remember back in the eighties, them going to the Super Bowl and losing. Uh and so I was just like, you know, it's nice to have an underdog win. So I was rooting for them. And also, and this is kind of really petty and 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 what's the word? 
it's just completely surface level, but I just think they have cool helmets. I like the tiger stripes. They are cool helmets. So, so just since this is very important on the sports podcast, everybody, four teams have never appeared in the Super Bowl. I looked oh, this up courtesy of Wikipedia. Cleveland Browns, the like newer Cleveland Browns, not the Cleveland Browns that went to Baltimore and became the Ravens, the right, Cleveland right. Browns, the Detroit Lions, oh. the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Houston Texans. Well, they're a relatively new team. They're they, relatively I, they, new because the, the, the Oilers were the Tennessee back when and became the Titans. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And then so now a handful of other ones have appeared but never won. The the uh, the Vikings have never won a Super Bowl, surprisingly, no. with four appearances. The Buffalo Bills, I remember in the 90s, it seems like they were there every year and could not eke out a win for a stretch there, but they never <laughs> won. The Bengals have been three times and never won. The Falcons in Atlanta, the Carolina Panthers, good old Chargers. And uh, what else do we have? The, the Houston, Tennessee Oilers, Tennessee Titans, whatever they're called, and the St. Louis slash Phoenix slash Arizona Cardinals. I've never, oh, yeah. never even won. Uh, real quick, just to, as we're yeah, on this topic and, and to make it, just to bring it back home for me, do you know that there there's only one Major League Baseball team that has never been to a World Series? Yeah, it's the Mariners. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Seattle Mariners. We may <laughs> yeah. have talked about this on this podcast before. Until a few years ago, there were two. Uh, the, I mean, and, and, and then you have to broaden it and say, if, as far as, you know, not just a team, well, but a what franchise. Was the other one, the Nats? The yeah, Nats the Nats, because the, the Nats were the Expos in Montreal before, and they had that that team, that franchise had never, ever been to, let alone The Expos won. never went through? Oh, yeah, because the Expos had their great season back in 94, and then the strike came on. The Expos yep. were going to clean house that yep. year. Yeah. But nope. Yeah. So, it was, yeah. so, yeah, they had never been to, let alone won a World Series. And then a few years ago, famously, the you know, the Nats took the series and and I was Ryan's really excited because I was living in Alexandria player. at the time. It was like, you know, great. The, the, my current home team has won. It's really exciting. Uh, but then it made me really sad because I realized that my home home team has, has now has the uh, unlikely distinction of being the only team in the Major League Baseball never to have been to World Series. I will say, though, what Seattle does claim, those those who cling to our history, is that back, the back, back in the day, the Seattle Pilots did win a national championship game. I don't know if it was called the World Series back then. Seattle Pilots ended up being traded off and became the, anyone, anyone? Milwaukee Brewers. Oh, isn't it? I love the history of that. Like the fact that the uh, Texas Rangers were the Washington Senators originally. Right. They moved to right. Texas and became the Rangers. And to this day, the Texas Rangers actually own the trademark to the Curly W that the, that the Nationals use. Really? Funny things like that. So the Nats did they, have get, a, to pay, did they get a piece of the action then? The Nats have to pay them a royalty to use their logo. It's kind of funny. That's interesting. You, you think they would have chosen something slightly different that didn't look quite like the Walgreens logo? Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? Hmm. What can you do? Anyway, <laughs> let's let's move on. Anyway, I, I, well, the whole point is, I, it was fun. I did have a nice weekend, but it was a little uncomfortable attempting to watch the halftime show with three baby boomers in the room because they were not they were not into it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Like, you can't please out the The boomers don't like it, but then the Gen Z doesn't like it either. They think it's fun. This, this was the halftime show for what? us. What? The Gen Z didn't like it? I don't know. I heard people, you know, there was chatter. Like, what's this music for the old folks? It was we classic. The old folks. But whatever. Was anybody complaining when Prince was playing the halftime show? Like, was he old, like Red Hot Chili Peppers? Everybody loved that show. Like, oh, that get one over was it. terrible. What? That one was terrible. No, no. Bruno Mars saved it. He saved that halftime show. I don't know. I just remember after the um, after the famous Janet Jackson incident, like the next year, it was like Paul McCartney. They like they played it as safe as they could and just said, "Boomers, have your t- day." And then the next year after that, it was the Who. It was they nothing wrong yeah. with either of those, but no, they, no, they, definitely throwbacks for sure. 
They they uh, definitely played it safe for a while after that. Anyway, and then of course J Lo was great that one time, and I've got J Lo on my mind because we watched Marry Me. Oh yeah, how was it? it? Was a good time movie. Oh, it was fine. You know, it's what I could. I've heard it was a decent rom com. Yeah, it was fine. I appreciate J Lo's commitment to keeping the rom com alive. You know, it's a dying genre. How's the, her the acting? Mid- budget. Her, how's her acting? Oscar worthy, like always. Because <laughs> like, yeah, I've, I've often avoided J-Lo movies, not because I have any particular dislike for her. I think she's a fine dancer, vocalist, etc. But I don't think she's a fine actor. And uh, um, have you seen Made in Manhattan? Unfortunately, I saw part of it. And that was part of what sealed the deal. Classic by mind. every measure. Yeah. Every measure. Okay. So we're drifting because we actually have important things to talk about this week. We do. Um, you know, before we, we're going to, I want to talk about Wilcox, but I think we'll have a lot to say about that one. So before we get to that, I think I'm going to bump, just bump a couple of things real quick that I want to get to. Um, President Nelson shared a message on Valentine's Day. This doesn't seem like a huge deal, and potentially it's not, except I just can't remember a time when any prophet has decided to leverage Valentine's Day into a message about an increase in loving kindness. He shared this on his social media uh, properties, like on Facebook. And to be clear, I did a, an LDS.org and a newsroom search just looking for Valentine, Valentine's Day. And really, you don't, nothing shows up. You don't find anything of note. So I, I think uh, he's he's capitalizing on a, a vacuum of content here yep. uh, for Valentine's Day. You can find stuff called, there's an article, there's all stuff from like the 90s, from like 1985 about edible Valentines. It's a mess. So anyways, nice President Nelson to share this. He just talked, what he's talked about though, it was in uh, 2005, two days before Valentine's Day. That was when his first wife uh, passed away, and it was suddenly and not planned. Of course, it was painful, and he always kind of equated that to Valentine's Day. And then he, of course, found love and companionship later on with uh, Wendy Watson. But I love that he pivoted into saying, you know, regardless of our relationship status, reminding us that for some it's a wonderful day to celebrate affection and love, and for some people it's painful because things haven't you know worked out as they hoped. But he he pivots into reminding us that the uh, you know that we can focus on the Savior Jesus Christ that. As we study the Old Testament, we should look for a word that appears 25 times, loving kindness. And I like that. in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was good because, you know, a lot of times with the Old Testament, we get really caught up in like the weirdness or the violence. Or the, and, you know, those things yeah. are part of the yeah. Old Testament. And not that we should like downplay them or ignore them. They're all important parts of the of the scripture. But I, the idea, though, that it, I mean, it's false to say that's all the Old Testament is about. There is a strong message about the need for loving kindness and the commandment that the commandment to love your neighbor comes way before, you know, Matthew 25 or whenever that is, that scripture is that, uh, that we quote a lot from Jesus. But yeah. So um, yeah, I liked that idea that, you know, that's something we can look for and is relevant in our current scripture study. Yeah. It was a good that message. Was cool. it, just, it just stuck out to me. I was like, man, president Nelson is on. He's just, he, he you know, does not miss an opportunity to yeah. find a way to thematically connect with us. So I thought that was great. Definitely. And also I think it was good because, you know, like the way we celebrate Valentine's Day now, by and large, it's a celebration of like romantic love, like Eros-centered right. love, right? And I was reading something on Twitter and this a Catholic person was pointing out that like, no, this, um, you know, Valentine's Day is not <laughs> reserved solely to celebrate one aspect of love. It's really about loving kindness and loving mankind and, you know, God's love, et cetera. So I think it is appropriate to try and, you know, broaden our scope a little bit. It doesn't have to be a miserable day if you're alone. I mean, you know, I don't want to belittle anybody's experience. I, I've had years where I loathed about Valentine's Day because of my single status, et cetera. But, you know, that, but we can make it what it 
needs to be for us. And, you know, it can be a celebration of any kind of love. My concern, Jeff, yeah. is that President Nelson has now put his first step, the church's first step, onto the slippery slope of us venerating Catholic saints. <laughs> we start with St. Valentine's Day. What happens next? Are we going to start venerating St. Patrick? Patrick? Obviously. Mm-hmm. Are we going to just pull out the old liturgical calendar, calendar and start having feast days for all the saints listed there? Like, I don't know. L- I don't know, Jeff. Listen- this isn't the church I grew up in. Listeners would know you're all about the liturgical calendar, though. You are. <laughs> That's, I'm not all about it, but I think, I think there's value in it. I think we could do, we, it, it would be useful for us to pay a little more attention to it and extend out our celebrations of Christmas and also Easter. Like, not that we have to all do like a 40 day fast for Lent or whatever, but right. I think, you know, it's, there is some value in, uh, being a little more familiar with how other people, how other Christians observe these feasts and holy days and uh, maybe incorporate some of those things as appropriate. But we should not be venerating saints. That's all I have to say about that. Well, and some fun bit of extra trivia. St. Valentine is not just a patron saint of, you know, types of love. He's also the patron saint of beekeeping. Oh, never mind. Let's venerate him then. I love honey. Honey's great. Right. Which is all the more fun on Valentine's Day because when you think about like calling your honey, honey, mm-hmm, it's got mm-hmm. extra meaning now because yeah, of the right. purists, The right? sweetest of sweethearts. I, and I believe I read he's also the patron saint of epilepsy. I don't know that was a thing that needed a patron saint. I mean- But it's, but it's, it's true. I'm and sure people with epilepsy tri- appreciate having a patron saint to call upon. And, and- another fun bit of trivia, friends, is part of his relics are in the town of Sambir in Western Ukraine, since Ukraine's huh? in the news. The relics of St. Valentine are in Ukraine. Good Have you times seen them? All around. No. You, okay. I've been to, yeah, I mean, I spent time in Ukraine. You, you lived I, in Kiev for a while, didn't you? I did live in Kiev for a little bit, a little stretch there. Yeah. But it wasn't well, in Kiev. It was in Sambir, Sambir which is okay. a town I've never been to. I have zero idea of, I can find Ukraine on a map and point to its capital city. But other than that, I, I don't really know anything about the geography. But maybe we should, um, maybe we should a big use country. that as a... As a because we're so good at segues. Um, speaking of the Ukraine, there is a missionary that was featured <gasps> in the Deseret the, News oh, who had to be that. evacuated twice on his mission. So yeah. the beginning of his mission uh, started him out in the MTC, like most people do. He was learning Russian, preparing to go to the Ukraine, which is interesting to me. Stop saying the. You're offending me. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I actually learned this recently, and I made a... You... Like a I made a commitment to myself to stop using the the in front of Ukraine because I was like, but I've, I'm, I am influenced by my upbringing. So I, I repent and I apologize to any Ukrainians or any people who are, uh, you know, who love the, you love the country of Ukraine. Um, anyway. I had one other funny interjection. It happened to be on Super Bowl night. I watched an episode of Seinfeld, just like in, I've been watching oh, yes. it, um, casually in order. I happen upon an all in one episode the episode when Jerry gets tickets to go to the Super Bowl, and this happened oh. to me on Super Bowl Sunday, and that is the same episode when Newman and Kramer are playing Risk, and right. it has the famous scene about the Ukraine is weak. So I was just kind of cracking up with, every, with, yeah. with everything going on in the news. Like I'm looking at my news feed. The Super Bowl is ending. There's the threat of war in Ukraine immediately, and all of this is in one episode of Seinfeld. I thought it was so random. What timing? So continue. Seinfeld is a prophet. <laughs> so well, so well. anyway, so this mission is I, – I, I wanted to ask you – I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, I know that because Ukraine was part of the USSR for such a long time, and obviously just being neighbors with such a powerful and influential country that's been that way for centuries, 
you're going to have a lot of Russian influence and obviously Russian speaking, Russian language happening. Sure. But, yeah, but if course. you're serving in, in Ukraine, why would you not learn Ukrainian? Would that not be a more useful language or do you need both like Ukrainian and Russian speaking missionaries there? It depends on where you are. Um, basically in Ukraine, the farther west to east you go, the more prevalent the Russian language becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're in far western Ukraine, which for a stretch was even its own mission, the Lviv mission. It's it's very Ukrainian out there. The, the identity is strong is even stronger. Um, I was in Lviv out there in the West once, and we asked someone like at the Opera House if they had a program in Russian, and they just looked at us and they're like, "We're in Ukraine. Why would we have a program in Russian?" Hmm. Um, but if you go to far eastern Ukraine, there's some areas where it's dominantly Russian, especially basically the areas that Putin's meddling in right now. So you can you could actually Wikipedia this like language prevalence in Ukraine, and it's a very clear kind of percentage increase of as the way it shifts over between the, the two. So is this an effect of colonialism under the USSR? Is this an effect of like shifting borders that go back and forth over the centuries? Is it, It's a mix kind of, of all sorts of things. A, I, mean, I, mean, B, yeah. I mean, Russians and Ukrainians share kind of a common ancestry in many ways. Kievan Rus was almost the foundation of like Eastern Slavic culture and peoples that fanned out from there. Kievan Rus is like what was Ukraine back in the day. Oh. Um, so it's, it's like you said, a lot of things. So Soviets drawing up different borders. The fact that there are just, Ukrainians who are ethnically Ukrainian, not Russian, but Russian is their first language because of proximity mm. and being part of the Russian Empire. And also part of it is because Western Ukraine for stretches was part of either the uh, Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth or it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And oh. so okay. some of that has to do with old just old M- imperial borders and, and things. And that's like that. why nationalism is dumb, because if you so, go back far enough, your nation was a different one. <laughs> Yeah. And so it it all depends on your mission. They will call you, you could be called Ukrainian speaking or Russian speaking. Uh, From what I've seen, most of the ones who are called Ukrainian speaking wind up picking up Russian anyway, but I have not always seen the ones who go Russian speaking wind up picking up Ukrainian. Interesting. And are both uh, Ukrainian, both Ukrainian and Russian are Slavic languages, correct? Yeah. Yeah, they're so close. Are, are I mean, they're they clo- fairly closely related then? They're close. Ukrainian has some different sounds and some different uh, letters in the alphabet and things Would it like be that. akin to like Spanish and Portuguese kind of a relationship or a you little farther You could kind apart? of say that. I mean, the sounds are similar. What I would honestly say is Ukrainian uh, phonetically sounds a little bit more like Polish than hmm. it does Russian. Okay. But written wise, you can see a lot of similarities and there's... Anyway, and they both use Cyrillic, Cyrillic alphabets, right? They both use Cyrillic alphabet. I've wondered if the Ukrainians would get hardcore and their pivot to the West and be like the Turks and say, guess what? We're because the Turk in Turkey in the Ottoman Empire, they used the Arabic alphabet for centuries. And it wasn't until Turkey, you know, after World War One, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Secular Turkey came out of the ashes of that. And, you know, Ataturk organized the, the country of Turkey. And as part of the process, not outlawed, but they changed the Turkish language from one written with the Arabic alphabet to one written with Latin characters to deliberately pivot to Europe. And some other countries have done that. Uzbekistan did that after the fall of the Soviet Union. They oh. made the Uzbek language back in uh, Latin characters and all, you know, things happen. That's interesting. That is super interesting. Okay. I'm nerding I, out. I know. You gotta, no, I mean, we could like, spend a whole episode talking about like Indo-European linguistics and history. So. Hey, so, hey, so what happens is this kid was okay. on a mission. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so he's on a mission. He goes he goes, goes to the MTC. He's learning Russian because he's preparing to go to Ukraine. And then while he's at the MTC, COVID-19. So he had to get, I mean, so evacuation is kind of a strong word, I think, uh, not necessarily the most appropriate word. He was basically, he was sent away from the MTC to, I think he just did home MTC, if I remember correctly, for the remainder of his preparation. And then when he got assigned... He uh, 
Hang on. Encounter some frustration in the MTC. All right. All right. So then, yeah. So what, what, what happened? He got assigned to serve in the United States for a while. Um, Which is normal. Yeah. Right. Because of the, you know, with the, with COVID-19 and everything, we weren't sending missionaries abroad. In fact, many of our missionaries that were abroad were brought back home. Um, so he ended up serving for several months, uh, if not like a, a close to a year in the United States. And then eventually he got to be assigned to Ukraine. And, and he was, by the way, he was in the Dnipro mission, which is farther east. So that makes even more sense that he was speaking. That, that covers the entire country all the way out to the eastern frontier with Russia. Right. And also that is quite relevant to, I mean, I guess all Ukrainian, all uh, non-native uh, Ukrainians who are serving there have been reassigned. And that's what happened. That's his second evacuation. So he's been serving in Ukraine and uh, just what uh, was it a few weeks ago, the church evacuated all non-native Ukrainian missionaries yep. out of Ukraine. And so it was funny because it's interesting. It's, it's, it's fun to kind of read the article and see his perspective because he talks about how the experiences at the beginning of his mission prepared him for this experience where he said, you know, a lot of these other missionaries are feeling really uprooted and kind of just like disoriented with this. And I feel like you know, I've been here, I've done that. It's kind of par for the course for me. And he also acknowledged, uh, you know, that he feels like he's been strengthened by the spirit through these uh, experiences, but also he's learned to lean on the spirit for, you know, in these types of situations. So he's just like, hey, it happens. And he's happy. I think uh, he was close enough to the end of his mission that he's just going home. Um, But there are other missionaries who are having to be reassigned. And again, mostly within the United States, mostly it was American missionaries and they're getting sent to Mm -hmm. Alaska and Illinois, all places that are are nothing at all like Ukraine. So I'm sure it is quite jarring, but this guy was, uh, was, you know, taking it all in with, you know, in stride. And it's, it's a cool, fun little article. Yeah, fun little fun little article. It seems like he got back for a few weeks. I love the part at the end when it just says like he is now working in real estate. It's like <laughs> it's like this random epilogue, like it happened years ago. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, it's just sort of like where are they now? Well, he's working in real estate. Yeah. So, just just one random update since we're on Ukraine, real quick. So this a post on January thirtieth from a member I saw who was there in Ukraine, and it was the fifth. It was a fifth Sunday in January, and everyone does different, you know, specialized lessons for adults usually on a fifth Sunday. But he said the Sunday school lesson in Kiev today was all about what to do in case Russia invades. So they spent their time in church covering like making 72-hour kits, storing decontaminated water for drinking, um, sharing all their experiences, discussing like exit paths out of Kiev if they need to get farther west and try to get out. Like, And then they said it's great. Everyone has upbeat demeanors in planning this. But it's a good reminder that... Um, you know, while well, you go to your fifth Sunday lesson and it winds up being some kind of rote discussion about like temple and family history work or something like that, uh, the saints in Ukraine are planning for war and how to survive in the event of it. Um, so just good perspective, I thought. Yeah. I'm saying that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. You know what? Let's just do it. Let's do it. Will Coxia. I don't even know where to begin. So obviously everyone, last week, folks, by the way, we had a great interview with Tyler the Fever and uh, um, Sam Skidmore, uh, two individuals. One is a a doctor and the other one is obtaining his PhD. And they did a study on um, individuals who have LGBTQ Latter-day Saints who have met with their ecclesiastical leaders and sort of talked about their experiences and what things were good and bad for them, like what resonated well with them. And they're trying to expand that research to include the bishops and stake presidents and branch presidents and their experiences in that same vein. Anyway, 
Uh, I'm saying that because you should take the time to listen to it. It was a great discussion. And it's also a reason why we didn't do news last week. And so we might have covered the story last week had that been the case, even though it broke right around the time we usually record. It's kind of good that you didn't, though, because so much more has developed since that last episode. Exactly. In the week since, we've learned a lot more. But just for a quick primer, in case anybody missed it, uh, I don't know how you would. I think this has reverberated pretty strongly around the Latter-day Saint uh, sphere. Brad Wilcox, who is a beloved by many uh, BYU professor of religion. He currently serves on the uh, Young Men's General Presidency. He's prominent on the LDS Fireside circuit. I mean, I think my first exposure to him was in California. He came into the, the fabled Irvine Fireside for young single adults and did his thing. And I, I, I loved it back then. I even, I even sent him an email afterwards thanking him for his remarks and asking him to specify, talk a little bit more about one section of it. He, like, he, he sent me a copy of his book and wrote a nice little note inside it for me and all kinds of stuff. Like I was very touched. So Brad Wilcox is, is beloved by many. But then Brad Wilcox was giving a fireside in Alpine uh, two Sundays ago. Uh, the problem was this fireside was recorded on Zoom and somebody leaked it out and Brad Wilcox said what we can charitably describe as insensitive and um, inappropriate and unfortunate things about blacks and the priesthood, about women in the temple, about those who might consider leaving the church. About people um, who never were part of our church. Yeah, yeah, he'd kind of demean other religions in many ways. Not kind of. Now, he, he he specifically and emphatically demeaned other religions. So okay, sorry, but um, <laughs> so a lot went down. We will of course post the audio. I mean, if you haven't seen it already, we could embed it if we need to on the website so you can see the video of him saying this. But basically, he gets up and he's trying. To, I get the point he's trying to make. He's trying to talk about uh, God's timing and things more or less. And he says like, well, what about? Let's talk about blacks and the priesthood. What about black? What about, oh, he says the blacks, which is even terrible. He says, and, and the priesthood, he's like, oh, you know, Brigham Young's a jerk. The members are racist. And, he's, and then he says, maybe we're asking the wrong question. He says, what about why no one had the priesthood until 1829? And it's it's toned like this. And it's, uh, that's oh, troubling, Jared. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack. I, I, don't, I don't need to like yeah. recite the so entire like, thing. Like, yeah, but. we don't have to give all the details. But yeah, so there was that part part about... Uh, diminishing the, you know, and, and part of the problem here that, you know, the, the larger problem is, you know, especially in the as this began, is that he's taking people's sincere questions and doubts or, you know, just issues that they have with church history or church doctrine, church practice, mm-hmm. etc. And he's being very dismissive about them. And so, yeah, there yeah. was very much a tone that he took on with this whole like, eh, this, you people worrying about the blacks and the priesthood. And then he did the same thing with women in the priesthood. He did uh, and so, this, a similar thing with just in, like you said, in general, with people who are on their way out of the church, who have left the church. He, he It almost came across as a threat to the youth in the audience. You will lose everything. Church, you will yeah. lose everything. And the way he said it, I mean, he takes, if you know, if you've listened to Brad Wilcox, he has a very particular way of inflecting and intoning and speaking. And there are times when he wants to like communicate something very seriously, his tone kind of drops and he gets into a little bit of sure. a whisper. And that's what he took on when he said you will lose everything. And so it's like, yeah. So there was a lot of problems that people found and encountered and walked away with, uh, upon viewing this, this talk that was recorded. 
but the main thing that people seemed to latch on, especially in the beginning, was this idea of, of the blacks, right? And the priesthood and how dismissive yeah. he was and how he turned it from a problem of like, why was there this policy? And, and, and let's be clear, this wasn't just for our sakes of discussion and for clarity. You know, we often use the term priesthood ban. Um, and I've seen it pointed out, and I think this is an important thing to clarify. It, it, a priesthood ban makes it sound like black men were discriminated against, and that's true. But this was also an exclusive policy slash doctrine that applied to women in the temple, men and women in the temple. So this is not a priesthood ban. This is a priesthood and temple exclusion for all black members of the church who have African descent. Um, anyway. And- and that's one that jumped out at me because he spends a lot of his remarks when when he pivots over into women and the priesthood. You know, there's this remark he makes. He, he basically says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, like, you know, if a man wants to go to perform ordinances in the temple, you know, they've got to be set apart. They've got to do this whole thing. He says, women, you just waltz right in there. And, and he and did use the term waltz right in. When and and he's, to the he's, he's trying to set this up with the idea of of sort of go, building upon what Elder Oaks or President Oaks uh, gave a number of years ago. You're talking about how we, how women also exercise priesthood power, but there's a distinction between those who are ordained to the priesthood or have priesthood keys. It can, that can be a complicated discussion, but once again, he's kind of flippant about it. And it's weird because he's like simultaneously trying to downplay the importance of priesthood ordination. But yeah. then at the same time, as if to make it like, so the women can waltz right in, but then you have to be quickly reminded, like you said, uh, if priest ordination is not important for the temple, then why couldn't black women go in in the first place, which has nothing to do with priesthood ordination, as you said. And that that's a gaping hole in the logic. Right. right and there. it's also, and, and it's not about even, uh, you know, it is, you know, so we, yeah. It, yeah. So it was all, it was, you know, across the board, black people, and officially it was black people who traced their uh, lineage through Africa. So I guess like darker skinned Maori peoples or, you know, like Aboriginal people in Australia didn't apply to them. I don't know. Well, kind of. And the reason it got so messy as time went on is because primarily you had people of mixed race descent in South Africa and in Brazil. And it became, right. and the church is like, we can't be in the business of trying to like police people's DNA just to right. see if they can have a temple recommend. Right. Exactly. So it, yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so he, he's okay. So the point, yeah. So we're talking about this, you know, this, this, this very important and big thing. And it's interesting too, because in a, also he's talking about it, this issue of the, the priesthood and temple exclusion as if it's a big question and we just don't know the answer. And he's given this whole like, well, maybe it's because Brigham was a jerk. Maybe it's because they were racist. And it's, and he says, we don't really know, but here's another question. And he tries to reframe it in a way that makes, you know, poor mainstream white people, the victims, because they were had to not have the priesthood for, 18, for 1,800 years or whatever. But the other thing that's a problem here mm-hmm. is that, I mean, we know pretty well why we had priesthood and temple exclusion policy and doctrine. Brigham Young was not shy about explaining it. And so it's like, why are we pretending this is a mystery that we, we can flippantly make up you know, excuses for or flippantly dismiss as we try to turn the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the the conversation on its head in the way that he tried to. And it's like, well, no, I mean, we do know why. And yes, yes, the, the, it was wrong. Like the, 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 the doctrine that Brother Brigham espoused and explained for why would he instituted this uh, policy is incorrect and disavowed by the church. And also, um, the explanations that he gives are rooted in racist ideas that 
cast all people of black African descent in a certain way or of a certain descent or of a certain character. And so, I don't know, it's just interesting because again, he's being very dismissive and it's, and I think a lot of the criticism comes because it's a, it's a type of misdirection away Mm -hmm. from truth, away from facts that may not be comfortable or may not be easy to like wrap our heads and hearts around and to, you know, really accept this part of our, the history of our doctrine. But well, we don't, we, we don't accept it. I mean, I think. Right, exactly. Sorry, but I mean, you do have, I but you do have to accept it as a reality. Like, this yes, is something that's part yes. of our heritage. It's part of something that are, what used to be taught and used to be believed. But apparently, and then, then that's the next problem, is that he, it, you know, the used to be, used to be is, is what we should be saying. But the way he's teaching uh, these ideas, it's almost as if, you know, he still believes those things that have been disavowed. And, and he never explicitly said he did. But that's yeah. the implication that's coming through. And so, I mean, I, I saw some people, be, you know, I've seen, of course, because online you're going to see all sorts of takes. Um, and some people are saying like, oh, you're reading too much into it. It's not that big a deal. Hey, you didn't mean it that way. But the problem is that like so many people currently do and will continue to struggle with this doctrine and with this policy. And so whether or not he intended to, like the way he addressed it, was flippant enough and dismissive enough that whatever his intentions were, it came across as hurtful and it came across as um, ignorant, really. It and came so, across as, as, as privileged, comfortable white men from the Intermountain West who don't think any better. Right. Even if, even if they, I don't think he has any malice. I don't. Exactly. But, but, it speaks to, but it speaks to institutional, structural, cultural issues that we have as a faith yeah. community that we need to have the courage to address. And let's give credit and, where credit is due. And we, we've got links uh, that we, you know, as in our prep, and we'll have these links if, you're, if, the, if they haven't already been posted to TWIM's feed and on the website, they will be. Right. Uh, but he has po- apologized twice now. He gave one what? apology. Oh. The day huh. after this thing leaked, the day after the fire, I mean, the day it leaked and it was the day after the fireside, he he got pretty quick onto that apology um, platform. And I got to say, you know, and people, of course, as, as they're going to do, like a lot, several people found fault with the with the apology and that's going to happen. The the apology came across more as like, I said, I, the way I said things was hurtful and I'd never intended that. But here's well, he the thing. It, he said, it, he said to those offended, I, to those offended uh, especially right. my dear black friends, I offer my sincere apologies, which is good. But then right. you're couching in a language. You're saying, right. if you were offended, I'm sorry, not what I said. Right. But he, but he also say did recognize some fault you know, of, of his own. He did. And, and credit so I, I, I want to say that, like, yeah. that's, yeah. That, that takes guts, especially to do it so quickly and to do it um, in the way he did, you know, and he, and he did it via Facebook post, but still it reached a lot of people. And I got to give him credit for that to say he recognized that, you know, he could have very easily said, Hey, I didn't do anything wrong. You guys are making a big deal of it. Or he could have just ignored it. Right. But he did get on social media and issue an apology. And I have to admire him for that. And when he apologized the second time, it was in, um, the context of another fireside that he was giving. Right, so he's in a, he's on a Zoom fireside this time. It yeah. wasn't uh, the first time he's in a chapel and it's being broadcast over Zoom. This time he was giving a fireside to some youth LDS youth in Canada, and so he was doing it over Zoom. And he began his remarks by bringing up what he had said, and he not only acknowledged that he had said it that one time, but he also acknowledged, as many people brought up online, that this is a kind of a canned talk that he has given several times. And that's so, for for me. 
what was lacking in the first apology was right. like basically saying like, oh, I said some things last night that didn't come out the way I intended. But then immediately, of course, if you've been, you know, they rehearse these things. This is part of who of they are as, as, as disciples, but also it's kind of part of your brand when you're hot. He's on, on a speaking circuit. circuit. He has yes, canned, absolutely- prepared remarks. Like, are you telling me someone gives TED Talks and isn't workshopping them beforehand and rehearsing right. their remarks? Right. It's the same idea. Yeah. So that's the part initially. So I'm, I'm very pleased that he gave a second apology. But even then, it was still kind of in response to like, oh, it surfaced that more stuff. I've said this many times, it turns out. like, And he knew in the first apology that he'd said the same thing in the past. Right. So yeah, in the first apology, it was, sort of, it was just addressing you know, what he said in that particular video that got leaked. But then in the second apology... He, it's more comprehensive. And he says, it wasn't the first time I'd given that talk. It wasn't the first time I'd used the ideas I shared or the line of reasoning that I used to address some difficult topics. And then it says, and then he says, in the past, I failed to see how my comments could be seen as insensitive and hurtful. And I'm very grateful for friends who have helped me and corrected me and taught me. Once again, I apologize and I'm grateful more than ever for the atonement of Jesus Christ, which allows us to trust in the Lord. Again, very good. And here's the thing, like, I think you said this already, but I don't know Brother Wilcox extremely well. I've met him on a few occasions. Um, I've interacted with him. My sister actually took a class from him in the last year or two because uh, he. It, it's funny because you know everybody's on talking on and on about how he's a professor of ancient religion at BYU. Yes, he is. He teaches some scripture. Well, that's, that's uh, not what his doctorate is in. No, nope. no. And his main and in fact, most of his teaching is spent in teaching literacy and like how to teach literacy two young children. That's why my sister took a classroom and she was doing adult continuing education classes hmm. um, for a certification, you know, with her work uh, in teaching literacy to young children. And that's his specialty anyway. But, uh, but, Should but we go off on I, a massive, let's go off on a massive, okay, so, but I want, my point not is BYU that, like, hiring uh, about using not, Anyway, CES people as a priority right. for religion right. spots but, for but which like, you are academically graded, which makes perfect sense. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah, and so I mean, but again, so it, it's interesting. He still says his he didn't see how his comments could be seen as insensitive and hurtful. And again, I I, I don't doubt his. Oh, my point in all this is, from what I understand of Brother Wilcox, and from what I've been told, both you know, from what I understand from my interaction with him, from what I've been told by people who know him, I don't. He is an extremely sincere person. Uh, I've seen people casting him as some sort of shyster. Or you know, a, like a, a salesman, or you know, someone who's shilling for the brethren, or something like that. And it's like, I don't think those are accurate depictions of him. I think he is extremely sincere. I think he is very heart, just wholehearted and like heartfelt when he speaks. Like I don't think he says anything he doesn't mean. And so I think when he's apologizing, I believe he really means it. But the problem remains. And so again, I don't. So please, nobody take me this as me criticizing his apology or saying I don't accept his apology or that it wasn't good enough. It's good enough. But but the problem remains, and it's evident in the way he couched his apology. Yeah. That it's not. I mean, he doesn't understand that it's not just that his comments were seen as insensitive and hurtful. His comments were insensitive and hurtful. The the things that the 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 beliefs and the ideas that he was basing his comments and instruction off of are incorrect and hurtful and damaging, you know? And so I, I wish that we could hear or see some sort of statement and whether it's from Brother Wilcox or whether it's from the church or whether it's from BYU or whatever that acknowledges, hey, it's not just that this came across as like as callous or dismissive, et cetera. The problem is these comments were based off of incorrect teachings 
false ideas that we try have been trying to dismiss and correct for the last 44 years, right? So I don't know. Like it is interesting because BYU did make a statement. All they did, they, they, it was a tweet that came out that said they were deeply concerned about Brother Wilcox's comments. So that's nice that they were deeply concerned. But again, there was no nothing Thoughts addressed. Thoughts and prayers, like, buddy. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> right. Nothing addressed the root <laughs> of the problem, which is we don't believe that there was a good doctrinal reason for black people to not be allowed in the temple or be allowed to be ordained to the priesthood. Like there's, there's not, that's not part of our belief system. And if we, and when we talk about this topic without explicitly acknowledging that there's a problem, right? Anyway, I've been talking for a little while. What do you have any other kind of thoughts? I think you've summed up a lot of it. One with a second apology. I agree with you. I mean, you can't apologize for your tone. You have to apologize for saying the thing you said. And that and disavow that. I I appreciate it though that it's in. I think that I think this was good. Um, in his second apology on the call, he had with him the first counselor in the young men's presidency, Brother Ahmed Corbett, who is African American. Right. And um, and so I'm when he says, "My was, friends have helped me see," like I'm sure he's talking about. Well, one he of said, his he says this, but he says this specifically, like brother, my my dear friend, Brother Corbett has like helped correct me and helped me to learn and to understand, which is good. I don't think he was just bringing them on like a token, um, like black friend to try to say like, see, see, I have, you know, mixed race friends of different backgrounds. Um, so I thought that part was good. I was glad to see that he's engaging with someone close to him about what to do better. And that hopefully they're having positive, thoughtful discussions about it. I think for me, a lot of what this is all just sort of laid bare once again, which we've seen many times over the issues of, Blacks in the priesthood and, you know, official declaration too, all that stuff. Like we're, we're at this point right now, it seems, especially with everything uh, President Nelson's been doing with the NAACP, which is all very positive, all very good building bridges, moving forward. That's kind of seems to be the tone of the church. We are moving forward, uh, pushing out that notion that we are not racist. We love everybody. We actually believe in some elements in social all justice. All are alike uh-huh. unto God. All are alike unto God. We believe, we actually, I mean, you know, President uh, President Oaks gave that talk when he said, absolutely, Black Lives Matter. Like, we're doing things in this regard. And he actually put it on a banner across the bottom yeah. of the screen, yeah. We're, so we're actively engaged in this effort, but I th- and we're trying to turn the page, but I don't think, I, I just, it's never going to go away like this, the hurt, if the church refuses to just straight up really disavow it. And I, you know, obviously we have the gospel topics essays, we have saints volumes one and two and all that. And, and they talk about those things, frankly, to their credit, which is good. And those have all been positive steps, but everything comes short of the, and the church says like, this was wrong, but they don't go that extra mile and say like, you know, dumb, weak men did dumb things that were wrong, even in the eyes of God. That's obviously a shorter way to say it. And I imagine that's because they don't want to go that that dangerous extra step to imply prophetic incorrectness. I, I mean, I guess we we are far too close on like prophetic infallibility culturally, which we shouldn't. And there's some to their credit, right. like Elder Uchtdorf, who've tried to like speak out against that. But um, I just think like we we won't reckon we don't still don't reckon with it completely, like you and I are talking about right here. We're trying in all these ways to make it better to teach people not to be racist, but that thing is always looming there about our history for a hundred plus years yep. of a policy that we had. Um, and it's funny we've talked about this the other night. I was this is an example of us trying to move forward. I think so. I was reading a general. I've been reading through general conference talks from the last session. I hope I hope you'll appreciate this slight tangent. I was reading. Um, 
pres- Elder uh, Elder Quentinell Cook's remarks from the last conference, personal peace in challenging times. He starts his remarks talking about um, how he got to dedicate part of historic Nauvoo, and he, as part of his assignment, he went to Liberty Jail, which I was like, okay, that's in the Western Missouri, and then you traveled across a whole state to get to your next thing is one assignment, but whatever works. Um, but of course, he talks about Joseph's experience in Liberty Jail, and, and his, his talk's really good. It talks about, I mean, he speaks at length about the ways we can, um, you know, be closer to God and love other people and be more tolerant of them and this and that. But there was one funny paragraph that just stuck out to me as like a comms person, whatever it may be. So literally see if you can see this, Jared, he says the lives of the saints were threatened at the, as the result of an extermination order issued by the governor of Missouri. In addition, the prophet Joseph, Joseph and few choice associates associates had been unjustly imprisoned in Liberty jail. One of the reasons for the violent opposition to our members was most of them were opposed to slavery. The intense persecution of Joseph Smith and his followers constitutes an extreme example of the unrighteous exercise of agency that can impact righteous people. Joseph's time in Liberty Jail demonstrates that adversity is not evidence of the Lord's disfavor nor withdrawal of his blessings. Was there one sentence there that jumped out to you as a, as a borderline, just almost didn't even belong? And like could have been <laughs> Uh, the opposition to slavery thing? Or yeah, is like it's funny. One? And I read the whole rest of the talk expecting that to be a theme and it wasn't there. And yeah. I, I'm curious, I can only guess, of course, but in reading this, I'm like, I feel like this is one of these subtle things where where Elder Cook is trying to drop this in for no reason other than to say like, the members from a long time ago were against slavery. As if, yeah. I, I know I might be, maybe I'm reaching here, but the fact that it's never addressed anywhere else in the talk, and it's just like the random one reason that the members of the Saints faced persecution from Missourians was because of opposition to slavery, has nothing else to do with the rest of the remarks. It's, it's It seems I like mean, an interesting thing to include, because to me it seems like, oh, we're just trying to remind the people that right. even back when, we were not racists. We were against <laughs> Which that is totally institution, right? Which That's, is which is just it, but it's frustrating because while that statement is true, many of the saints many of the saints were, you know, abolitionists, and I think Joseph Smith himself was pretty abolitionist. Uh, although he did preach that the Bible had some justifications for slavery at the same time. Didn't they also have plans to colonize uh, Texas and let it be a slave like theocracy at one point? Was that right? Something yeah, yeah, anyway. Anyway, at the same time, you you know, fast forward a decade or so to Utah and we have Brigham Young not only using the Bible to justify slavery, but basically being the key and instrumental person in making Utah into a slaveholding territory. Slavery was legal in Utah. And, and at one point a slave, an enslaved person was paid as tithing and was used by the church until he was, they, they did emancipate him like three years after receiving him as a tithe. But I mean, yes, the early saints, many of them were opposed to slavery and that brought on persecution from some of the Missourians. But also <laughs> as part of our church history, there's all, there is, there's pro-slavery stuff and there's racist. I mean, this was just interesting because like, like you said, I, I, I agree. I love what the church is doing to move forward. I think moving forward is an imperative. I think it's important. Yeah. We have to yeah. like moving forward, it, you know, it, it's progress. The definition of progress is moving forward. But I don't think it's possible, like you said, to move forward without reckoning with and acknowledging, and even I would say, I would use the word repenting of our past. And I don't think this is a radical idea. Like the Lord himself in the Doctrine and Covenants calls on the church to repent. It says the church, he calls the members of the church and the church itself to be under condemnation. And one of the reasons why he says they're under condemnation is because they've neglected the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon. And he says that they will remain under condemnation until they repent 
and start using the Book of Mormon. And, and then he, you know, he, he names a couple other things. But there is precedent in in Latter Day Revelation for the church to be guilty of a sin collectively, and also for the church collectively to be called on to repent and make right what the Lord is calling them out on. And so I don't know, I, I would love to see more work done to reconcile our past and to acknowledge it very frankly, and to correct the errors of thinking that persist. Yeah. And to do that as a means of repentance that will help us to move forward in the way that we all want to, and that especially we can see President Nelson wants us to. Um, but yeah, I just don't think you can have one without the other. No. So before we move off of this, um, what, if any, action do you think should happen regarding Brother Wilcox? Like, uh, there are some, obviously, there are some, there are the Calvin Burks who believe he should be released and fired from everything and let it all go. Honestly, I am partially of the opinion I, his remarks about women made me uncomfortable enough that like, I don't know, my boys aren't teenagers yet, but I'm like, like BYU is its own thing, right? Like I, BYU is going to do what it wants. But at the church level, part of me is like, yeah, I don't know how much I could sustain him as a member of the young men's general presidency who is charged with teaching the young men how to righteously wield the priesthood to which they are ordained based on some of the things he has yeah. said. And that might be a bit of a leap, but like I... I would not be opposed if people were like, no, nah, Brother Wilcox, you should not be in this calling anymore. I also don't think people employed by BYU or CES should be in general church callings. I think that just winds up muddying the waters in a weird way. But There's a bit of a conflict there, isn't there? I mean, it, yeah, it I just don't think that's, I just don't think that's the, the best idea. Yeah, it's, like, I mean, it's like when your bishop is a politician. You know, it's like this kind of thing. Like, what do you... It right. just makes it... It's just no, and, and that's a hard question because honestly, you and I, we are not qualified nor are we in a position to, you know, make decisions like this. Sure. Um, but okay. I, I hear what you're saying. I don't have children, but I, I've, I had that thought. It was like, if I did have teenage kids and they wanted to watch a fireside by Brad Wilcox or go to a, a FSY or, you know, or education week or something like that and listen to him, I, I, I'm at a point now. I mean, and I grew up, I, I grew up, we bought his cassette tapes with his talks. I went yeah, to EFY yeah. sessions or, or uh, education week sessions and I sought him out because I loved him and I do love him. I, you know, a lot of my testimony came from those years as a youth when I was listening to Brad Wilcox and John, by the way, and like they inspired me to get into my scriptures more and like really, you know, dig into my testimony. I, I think he's done great things. And I think he probably continues to do great things along that front. But like I'm at a point now where I'm like, after this, I would, I would probably be hesitant to say, Hey son, maybe this, maybe for this education week, you know, hour instead of going to brother Wilcox, maybe let's check someone else out, you know? And so I think for me to not feel that discomfort, I would like to, I mean, I think, I think he's apologized enough. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not calling for more apologies, but I would like to hear him speak out and correct himself and like moving forward to, yeah, I like what he did with this uh, Zoom fireside where he, you know, started out acknowledging and of course it turned into an apology. And again, I don't want another apology, but I think if he could continue to acknowledge, hey, this is something that I've taught or has been taught in the past. Here's a better way to understand this or here's or here's why we can even say we don't understand it, or whatever, like to be more frank and forward with correcting things and making sure that he's teaching clear and correct doctrine and moving away from this that that to me 
I, I'm not going to call for his release. I'm not going to call for him no, we're to not be agitate. fired from his job or whatever. I, with- I, do, I do with you, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. I question the wisdom of having people assigned as not, to, not adjunct, but like assistant professors of religion of ancient scripture when they have zero qualifications in the field of ancient scripture. Well, they've studied you know, I mean, I, you well, which know, really is no different on paper than like the, uh, the Joseph Smith documentary we talked about almost a month ago that some thought yeah. I didn't give a fair shake to. I thought it was, I thought it was genuinely interesting. And there were some you, things. There, they but, wanted but you to give was, a fair shake to a conspiracy theory video. But is that what's either going way, on Either way, it was, it's all that <laughs> is born out of somebody, somebody's own get more hate mail for you. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, thank you. But all that is born out of someone's personal deep dive into a subject matter. And then they're going on positing what they have believed they have discovered and learned about it. And frankly, a lot of professors of religion are no different than that. You're, but you're just talking about church approved materials instead of, you know, more out there theories. No, Um, but when you, like when I was at, yeah, but you know, there were, I had, there have been, I believe there still are professors there who do it. Like, you know, Steve Robinson, who's passed away now, but you know, he was famous for his book, uh, Believing Christ, Parable of the Bicycle, right? But he was a professor of ancient religion. He had a PhD from Duke's Divinity School and, you know, and in which he had, you know, done his dissertation on, you know, topics in the New Testament. And I think in the, something about Epistles of Paul, I can't remember specifically, but the fact is, he, the guy was qualified scholastically, et cetera, to teach ancient scripture. I, and I took a New Testament classroom. Michael D. Rhodes, the guy had background in Egyptology and, and in studying that, you know, that, you know, ancient hieroglyphics and culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I took a, a Pearl of Great Price class from him. Like, oh my gosh, this guy who was uniquely qualified to talk about the Abrahamic scrolls and, you know, the papyrus, et cetera. Like, you know, I, I think there's value in scholarship and in like really having that deep dive of foundation of knowledge from which you can draw on and authoritatively teach and authoritatively answer questions or or help direct uh, students to find answers to their questions. And when you are an expert in teaching literacy to young people, which is an amazing and important, you know, field to teach and to be an expert in Mm -hmm. that doesn't make you qualified to teach ancient scripture. And so again, so I'm not going to call for him to be fired or to be dismissed from his job. But I, I mean, I, I am a little disappointed that we have put so much stock in the CES system, which teaches people for first and foremost how to present information to teenagers and how to form good relationships, teacher-student relationships with them. Like it's the CES process is how to how to make a good teachers who are good at teaching with certain methods. It's not a process that is about becoming an expert in the study of ancient scripture. So And I and I might be um I might be off on this having not been at BYU in a while. I feel like um there's a distinction. I feel like those who are not necessarily schooled in theology at BYU often wind up teaching the uh I don't want to say the basics, but like the core courses. Like like Wilcox is assigned to teach Book of Mormon, New Testament, mission right. prep, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you want to take something like on Islam or Judaism or more deep dive stuff that requires a greater greater training in theology, that's more likely to be reserved for the PhDs in the subject matter, but then they just throw all well, the other stuff. Yeah, for now, or at least like you said, when we were there or for now, but what happens in 10, 15 years when these tenured professors who have PhDs in those topics as they begin to more and more to retire or pass away, um, and then we only are hiring in into the religion teaching department, people who are have been through the CES process, and you don't have 
experts in Islam or Judaism. Yeah. And then like, what do those, do we drop those still, courses? Yeah, Cause they do don't we matter. Not yeah. Teach those courses. Exactly. That was exactly my question. Do we stop teaching them or do we have people who are uniquely not qualified to teach them, teach those courses? Like, which could be even worse. Cause like the last thing yeah. we need is greater misunderstanding of other faiths and things yeah. like that within our own, our own. Uh, right. I which think goes back much- to the, the, one of the problems with this fireside that started this whole thing. You know, he said that people, he, he talked about his children when they would play religion, and like mm-hmm. how even like his daughter would pretend to pass the sacrament because they were playing at religion. And then mm-hmm. he said that other religions that aren't the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're all like his children playing at religion, which is such a terrible and demeaning thing to say about other people of faith and other people who, who devote their lives to being pastors and to being priests and, and imams and all the, you know, rabbis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, to, to just dismiss them as being playing at religion. Like, you know, do you want somebody with that attitude teaching Judaism and the gospel or Islam and the gospel or comparative religion, you know, class at BYU? All of these are religion department courses. Um, it's, it's a problem. No, I, I agree it is. And this isn't to excuse it. I think a lot happens though when you're, you know, his remarks he was caught saying were to youth. And I think by default, we often- It makes it try- worse. It makes it worse because it was teaching them. But I think I think for some reason the default when trying to reach youth is to paint things a little more black and white, and you know not to, not to seek the nuance because these are impressionable young minds, and we don't want them thinking, oh, there is truth in all sorts of religions because then they might have the audacity to go and discover one that they like more than ours, yeah. right? I think that's the fear. And so they try saying. to say if you if you leave, you will lose everything. Other religions don't have the truth. We have the truth. Stay here, and the kids will be all revved up and say, oh yeah, man, I'm a 14 year old boy. And I am not going to look at porn and I am not going to play with myself and I am going oh to believe and go forward. And, um, yeah, I don't agree with it, but I get it. I think they consider their, I hear what you're saying. And, and I can see that being like an excuse you could make, but, and, and I know, and Brad Wilcox, I don't know all of his background, but I don't think he went through, I, I, I have very recently been through the entire seminary and institute pre-service program. And so I'm, it's changing again. They're 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 rearranging some stuff. I recently found out, but having been through it pretty recently and understanding what they're emphasizing, there's nothing in there about dumbing things down for youth or making it black and white or making or taking away nuance. Like that's not part of the CES Seminary and Institute teacher training. And so, if mm. Brad Wilcox wanted to do that, or if he felt like that was something he needed to do for these youth, that's not something that's officially part of the process or part of what. CES emphasizes should be done for youth. So I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that's a, a good excuse. No, it's I, I don't think it is either. I think it's this weird approach that there's like a zero sum approach and that's what's going to keep kids yeah. in the church. And we don't give youth enough credit, especially because the entire idea of come follow me, of restructuring our youth classes, all of this is basically demonstrating that we trust them more than we right. have in the past. And that we is trust a, them more right. to take ownership. But remarks like this are saying like, we don't trust you to think no. things through and be mature with nope. your gospel study. Yep. And that is uh, a central tenet of the CES system. Like the, the foundational discourse uh, that, you know, that they've used for the last 30, 40 years to, you know, it's like one of the first things they have you read as you're learning how to be a seminary Institute teacher is Jay Rubin Clark's uh, speech talk called, um, the charted course for education in the church. And one of the things that like, that's always stuck out to me, I've had to read that thing a few times now. And one of my favorite lines is that he says that you, you know, that you don't have to, and he, he says, you don't have to sneak up on the youth and whisper religion in their ear. 
Hmm. Like you can give it to them straight on. Basically, it's what you're saying, this idea that we can trust them to be mature and to be ready to hear and receive and like be like students in a in a good student capacity. And I and I feel like a lot of these things that we see like Brother Wilcox doing and and other examples of that, and we see it often in the church, is the equivalent of people kind of sneaking up behind the youth and whispering it in their ears and trying to just like find this the one weird trick that works for getting youth to love the gospel. Like you don't have to find one weird trick. The gospel is lovable. Jesus Christ is love. God is love. Yeah, the right? fruit is good. And, That's the idea. And when, right? yeah, and when we <laughs> give them the fruit, when we present the embodiment of love to the youth, it is eminently lovable without having to package it in a way that it's like, well, if we do it this way. That's the way they're going to, we're going to hook them. And like, I understand that we're seeing youth and young people leave the church and there's a lot of reasons that could be, but I don't think the reason is because we're not teaching it in a sneakier, catchy enough way, you know? So, yeah. so I think what we've established here is youth are leaving the church because of Brad Wilcox. <laughs> no, that's, that's what not what we've said either. I think I that's say- what we've <laughs> I know you're trying to transition. I do want to say one more no, thing. No, you're good. It's okay. Um, because it, we we spent you know, a lot of times speaking about Brother Wilcox himself, and of course we spent a significant amount of time speaking about the the issue of race and the temple and priesthood. But uh, one thing that a few people commenters online pointed out was that a lot of people were getting so caught up in that without and kind of ignoring or sweeping aside the issue of what what he addressed about you know kind of towards and about women and the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to like leave this with with that same error. And again, we can't get entirely into it. But I think one thing that was good, and, and you linked us to uh, uh, a, a an article in the Exponent Two on their website, and I thought they thought they brought up some really good points. So one of the points that I think is a good takeaway is again, you know, so Brother Wilcox, his remarks were trying to say that like basically he's doing the old pedestal trick, right? That like. Oh, the reason why women don't need the priesthood is because mm-hmm. they must have brought something with them from the pre-existence that made them so much better than men that men have to get the priesthood because we're catching up and the women are already awesome and they can waltz into the temple, as you said, right? Yes. And there's so many problems with that. Like, you know, pedestalization is a form of sexism. It's a form of misogyny and it's not okay. You know, and it's, a, it's generally, it's usually a way to sweep under the rug some sort of abuse or, or neglect and instead say, oh, no, we're not abusing, neglecting. Look how amazing you are. You're so much better than us. You are continued to be restricted from voting. You know, like, and so. <laughs> but not, hey, Utah, first first in the nation. Right. Come and on. we talked about Come that. I, I encourage everybody to go back and read uh, Nyland McBain's book, uh, Pioneering mm-hmm. the Vote, or listen to our, listen to our, our, interview, with our yeah. interview with her because we talked about these issues. But my point is, um, unlike the priesthood and temple uh, restriction and exclusion, which we do know the reasons for, and um, you know, because straight from the horse's mouth, the horse being Brigham Young, the the clear the 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 plain fact is that with women in the priesthood, we don't know why, and we can come up with all sorts of reasons why, but there's never been an explicit statement from God, from Jesus Christ in the in the New Testament, from any of His latter day representatives. This is the reason why men are ordained to the priesthood and women are not. The only clear statements we have are from people like President Oaks, who gave that great talk a few years ago, but he didn't say why women don't have the priesthood. He talked about everything they can do with priesthood authority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he did, all he said is God has dictated that men are ordained and women are not. And there's not a reason why. And so we do women a disservice and we do ourselves a disservice when we come up with excuses like Brother Wilcox did and try to make up a reason. The the fact is we don't have a reason why women are not ordained to the priesthood. 
And so let's not try to pretend like we get it or like that there's, you know, that we can, that we can explain God's work for him or alternatively explain the leadership's decisions, you know, on their behalf, because we just don't have that answer. And that's what I wanted to say about that. And now you make me want to uh, go to Sam Brunson's second article about this as well, because Sam had some great thoughts on this. And one of the things I can this is in uh, by common consent. Sorry, and by common consent, um, talking about women being being ordained. And one they often say, like you said, is that women are inherently more righteous than men and don't need it. Is a reason they put out there. But God's given us different gifts. You know, we're different people. Uh, it's there are obviously women and men who are more spiritual than one another and all this and that. But I love this. He talked to a Chinese friend of a friend of, his of Chinese descent who's not LDS, but familiar with the church. And he read Wilcox's remarks. And his immediate reaction was, this sounds kind of like the gender equivalent of Asians are good at math. He said, so let's not Asians are good at math women say, oh, you know, women don't need this because they're just inherently more spiritual. And Sam has some other Great remarks because Wilcox talks, you know, girls, here's some more of the language. Girls, listen closely because I don't know that you'll ever have somebody explain it quite this point blank again. You have access to every priesthood blessing. There is not one priesthood blessing that you are denied and you serve with priesthood authority. True. When you are set apart in a class presidency or you're set apart as a missionary or any other calling in the church, you serve with priesthood authority. You will go to go to temples where you will be endowed with priesthood power and you will dress in priesthood robes. Sam thinks says that's a weak justification for not giving women the priesthood. What it amounts to is basically ordination doesn't matter because like reasons, like you said, Jared, we just, we just don't know. And one good reminder before we close this part out, he, Sam keeps talking that he says one thing that's the pandemic has kind of laid bare is that when the churches were shut, there were women who didn't get to take the sacrament for months, perhaps. Because they didn't have a priesthood holder available priesthood. to them. And yeah. to be clear, you and I aren't like advocating and saying this has to change immediately, but what we're saying is we don't necessarily have the reasons. And while we can say women act with priesthood authority, the bottom line is there are things to which they do not have access if they're acting singularly and and that a man, a man could. I mean, I know it's not like kosher per se, if you're alone as a man to like bless the sacrament and give it to yourself, but I imagine in a in a in a certain situation, you you could do that if you needed to. But, you know, it, I, I agree. I don't like to put the women on the pedestal. I love this other story he talked about. He was at a stake thing. And of course, they called a new stake president. And he said something to the effect of, when we choose a stake president, or it's like the 70s, said, when we choose a stake president, we look for the most spiritual, organized person in the stake. And then we call her husband. And we know that's meant as a joke, but that's like so incredibly demeaning and... It is. And then if you, and imagine if you are a person, and I'm sure that some of our listeners may be a person, maybe people with this question, but imagine you're a person who does struggle with this idea of why, why women can't be ordained. Why can't women serve in priesthood leadership positions? Exactly. And imagine then hearing a leader say that and mean it as a joke. That's not, it would be the opposite of funny to you. You would say, yeah. Hey, wait a minute. If you're, you know, if you're acknowledging that, you know, the most righteous and organized and best candidate in the whole stake is a woman and saying now, but then you're going to call her husband. It's like, you're just proving my point, you know, and you're, and you're deepening my doubt about, and my question about this. And so it's like, yeah, well, I, like, I don't what, think we should just be, be playing this off as, as a punchline. I mean, we shouldn't. I mean, would anyone dare do sort of a, a similar uh, phrasing if it was like a racial version instead, like going back to blacks in the priesthood, be like, oh, we find the most righteous people in this area, but then we make sure to call the white guy because he's allowed to, or something like that. You would never say that. And it could be, and it could be just as offensive. It's terrible. Um, 
By the way, if you are a BYU alumnus and any of the Brad Wilcox situation has concerned you, there is the Race, Equity, and Belonging uh, page at BYU, and they actually solicit your feedback, and, and they make a point to say you are an alumnus. Does, you don't have to be actively going there, but you can have your concerns. But if you go to race.byu.edu, if there's things you want to express, hopefully, I'm saying hopefully in a constructive way, um, that can move the needle and share your input, there's a page there and you can fill out a form and uh, submit your thoughts. Um, I don't know if they'll read it, if they'll get back to you or any of those things, but there is an outlet for you where they actually encourage your feedback. Uh, not like Salt Lake where they officially say, talk, talk to your stake president, even though they keep reading letters from like members during general conference. To, <laughs> right. That's which, always confusing. Which to then me. validates the process, the, the whole idea of writing directly to general authorities. But you're only um, supposed to write to them if you have a faith promoting story, not if you have like a complaint or concern. I guess something like that. I'm just going to get throw something out real quick. Since we're sort of on BYU, BYU Magazine, and we're, run, we're, oh, we're not going to go crazy long this week. I think we've covered good things. But uh, BYU Magazine has a, I thought, interesting Napoleon Dynamite retrospective. It's been 15 years, 15 years, I think, since Napoleon Dynamite took the world by storm. And um, basically, it's an oral history of the creation of Napoleon Dynamite. They talked to all sorts of the people involved in it, both, you know, Jared and Drusa Hesh. Hess who made it. You've got John Heater, various producers, other actors who were involved in it. It's kind of fun. I mean, if it's obviously Napoleon Dynamite itself is not a Latter-day Saint film, but even as the director said, they're like, yeah, you're pretty sure Napoleon is a member of the church. I mean, based on his clothes, he lives in Preston, Idaho. He wears a Rick's College shirt. Like it's clear the people, the characters are Mormons in the film, but they kind of talk frankly about how like LDS culture, especially rural or inner mountain West LDS culture really informed what they did with these characters. And, you know, for many members of the church, it's a beloved film for a lot of those reasons. So it's kind of a fun little little read. And I appreciated, uh, in particular, they had uh, John Grease, who played Uncle Rico, one of the best characters in the film, who's not a member of the church. But he spoke very fondly of his time being up there in Idaho filming and getting to know, like, Mormon culture better. He even says he went to church with them every Sunday while they were <laughs> filming and observed it. And he speaks just very fondly of all of this. And I think it's great that he had this he didn't join the church or anything and that's fine but he had a very positive experience and it like taught him a lot about how he could be even better as an actor and writer and things he could do so anyway we'll link to it check it out it's a good it's a good read i enjoyed it um i know we're we're, we're probably gonna wrap this up but there's a lot of stories we haven't covered but i, I just don't, we yeah. probably just don't have time to but you did tease this at the beginning jeff so i think we cannot have, keep you we have cannot to. keep our listeners in suspense there is a new <laughs> desert industries being built Stop and you, it. And, and, and you kept everybody in like, you know, just like on tender hooks, just is it waiting finally to find out where it is. Is Gary, Indiana finally getting its due? No. Brothers and sisters and otherwise who are listening to this podcast as we speak, the new Deseret Industries has been dedicated in Tucson, Arizona. Hello. When did DI change their logo, by the way? Uh, That's new. Oh, the it typeface. Was sli- it was slightly because, like the the, word the little beehive bee logo, looks more or less the same, but the typeface is definitely different now. Yeah, it doesn't uh, even I look did a little research though. It looks like they updated it to the eighties. Oh, that's, well, that's the trend nowadays. I mean, you know, Pizza Hut reverted back to their uh, old logo, for example. Oh yeah. Are anyway, they re- yeah. are they building them with the funny red roofs again? I hope so. Everyone, the, the dining Pizza Huts. Those were those were that that was a. The Pizza Hut right that's on the that was on the road uh, on 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 uh, West Glebe, um, 
you know, like on, at, right at the intersection, like yeah, West Cleveland, yeah. South Cleveland. Yep, yep, they, yep. they, but right before we moved, they like totally like remodeled and retrofitted it and took away that weird red roof look, and they oh, made it try to try to make it more modern looking, I guess. Um, and so I, I, I just think it's interesting that they're going back to like the classic logos and stuff. That, <laughs> what, you love my you digressions. There's a great, there, there's a great YouTube channel called company man. And it's a guy who just provides like little essays about like the history of interesting companies. And he, some are mm-hmm. called like the rise and fall or the rise again of different organizations. He did a video on pizza Hut, and it's pretty interesting to like kind of go through their history of where they came from and their branding efforts and how, how Domino's and Papa John started gobbling up their market share, but especially Domino's in the past 10 years when they kind of reinvented themselves. Mm-hmm. Go check it out, folks. Maybe I'll I would also there. recommend while we're on this this re- random tangent, there is a Twitter account called used to be a pizza hut. And it consists entirely <laughs> of photographs of businesses that are that not pizza clearly, huts, but it clearly used to be a pizza hut. It's also like the hashtag is Utbaf. It used to be a pizza hut. Anyway, it's also like um used to be a Taco Bell. There were those yeah, Taco yeah, Bells, yeah, 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 a little yeah, bit mission style. Yeah, yeah, but there was a whole like ninety nine percent invisible episode about used to be a pizza hut, and and so I, I follow them on Twitter, and it's quite entertaining because you'll see like car dealerships or insurance agencies or whatever that are housed in these buildings that quite obviously were pizza huts in the eighties. Anyway. That's so funny. I love it. Um, good. One thing about the DI, I was curious about where DIs are located because I mean Tucson, like okay, that's only the fourth one in Arizona. Hmm. But the other ones are up in the Phoenix area. I was but say, I remember in, going to DI while I was on my mission in Phoenix. So yeah, there's nothing east of the Rockies except there's one in Houston, and that's it. There's nothing past that in terms of DI. I don't know why they don't try to like go, you know, expand more into the rest of the country. It's not like we have, don't have. There's competition, but that's what I mean. There's a market for thrift stores. And I things. would love to see like a an old timey looking DI in Nauvoo. You know, that would put be it, fun. Put, I'd put love, it next to I'd the old it. Browning Rifle Shop. Have a Desert Industries thrift store. Well, what I love about DI compared, I mean, a lot of thrift stores are based on with charitable organizations and do good things, but DI focuses a lot on vocational training on trying to help people, not their, their employees actually develop skills and get up on their feet. Yep. Uh, oftentimes through difficult circumstances, it's not strictly just a thrift store for money. Like there's, there's a mission there. And so I think it's good. And I think we should have, have more of them. Uh, one other quick thing I want to bring up. Um, do you remember six months ago when they told us they were getting rid of the priesthood and women's sessions in general conference? I do. Oh, Jared, I think you got gobbledygook on me. Oh, I said I there do. You. I do remember that. There you go. Um, and we were all like, well, that's kind of curious. What are they going to do instead? And they just did another general session. And I think the consensus from everyone this is purely anecdotal. Everyone kind of feel like that was kind of a lot <laughs> in terms of general sessions. Well, for whatever reason, and they'll never tell us why, the church has announced with the upcoming April General Conference, will once again have a women's session. They did not say if October will have a priesthood session. We don't know yet. But they will have the women's session, the same thing as before, you know, ages, what, eight and up, 12 and up. Actually, I forgot which one they said. They've, they've moved around a little bit about the age that should attend the women's session. But even though before, the exact language about why they got rid of the sessions was because, um, oh, where was it? It's pretty funny because they said, da, 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 where did I write that? Basically, they said because, uh, because of, uh, all sessions of general conference are now available to anyone who desires to watch or listen they just got rid of a specialized session in terms of what kind of content's offered. And apparently they're changing their mind on that. So there'll be a women's session in April. Right. But as you point out in the TWIM article, I think, did you write the TWIM article, right? I sure did. Yeah. Okay. As you pointed out, I don't, why is that an excuse? Like just because it's not everyone can watch it. Does that mean we 
can't have specialized content that everybody that, can that watch. very notion like, would mean like all, would mean all of YouTube should be the same thing on every channel. Like it's like <laughs> well, <laughs> since everybody can watch General Conference, we shouldn't be specifically talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be talking about every topic in the world. It shouldn't be specialized. Like I mean, it's just yeah, I mean, I'm obviously taking it to the absurd extreme, but uh, yeah, it's it's weird. It was, yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was weird rationale yeah. in the first place. I have no. to imagine they got they got feedback whether it was solicited or not no, yeah. or maybe they, i never saw if any surveys went out about it to, but they probably to me, did and- the excuse i mean it, it is not quite the same but it felt along the same lines of quality as like we don't sell caffeine on BYU campus because there isn't a demand for it that, it, it feels <laughs> yeah. like one of those yeah. explanations where it's yeah. sort of like um i know you think that's an explanation but i don't think it is so i don't know yeah, that's uh, yeah, but who knows? It's a mystery, and we'll never know the answer. But women's session is back, and who knows? Like you said, they, I don't think they made it clear whether or not it will be ongoing. They didn't make it clear whether or not we would be having a priesthood session in October. One thing that's interesting is if we do do that, you know, for the last several years where we had a priesthood session one one conference and a women's session the other conference, priesthood session was always in April, and I always thought that was on purpose. I mean, I probably read oh, too much into it, but I was like. You know, restoration of the gospel, restoration of the priesthood is in the spring, priesthood sessions in the spring. I mean, again, I'm probably- hey, we reading. barely even know when the Melchizedek priesthood was restored. So I read yeah. there was a really good milk uh, a really good enzyme article a few years ago where they they narrowed it down pretty well based on like, you know, just uh contextual evidence. And they yes, they, they, yes, they yes. Narrowed, narrowed it down to like a two-week period. Anyway, it's probably and Willard Richards summer. murdered Joseph Smith. Sure. <laughs> All these Yes. All yes. These, one other it's curious thing though. What, what, this, what I was going to say is, it, it, I mean, I was probably reading too much into the whole like priesthood session is April thing, but it just would be interesting if we went to now priesthood session or is in October and women's sessions in April. It's like, it doesn't really matter. We just have sessions when we have them. We just do them when we have them. If anything, maybe, it, it's, maybe it'll just be ad hoc in the, you know, and maybe like we, now we do a women's maybe. session and then for the next two conferences, we do combined sessions and then oh, let's do a priesthood session and maybe we'll just- i could do without the combined it was it was almost weird just like saddling up on saturday night and being like it's just you know here's hours five, and, more six, five and six of more yeah. more content uh did you notice as well though in the announcement they so they're going to allow people to attend general conference in person again they said mm-hmm. that it's going to be a limited number they will give out tickets to stake presidents in the united states and canada but very limited they didn't specify how limited that will be if it's social distancing, if whatever it is, I'm not quite sure. I mean, the conference center holds about 20,000 people, so I don't know what divisible of that it would be. But the funny thing is the reason they say, they make no mention of COVID. They don't right. say for safety measures. They just say because of all the construction on and around Temple Square, they're limiting the number of people who can attend. And which to be okay, fair, but okay. To be fair, I, so I was recently in Salt Lake. I, I went down to Utah last month uh, to help my mom out with some stuff. And I, I went up, uh, my cousin works in the church office building and I met up with him for lunch. And so I went and I parked underneath. Well, it's, well he, he doesn't work in the church office building. He currently works in the Joseph Smith Memorial building. Whatever. It's all on the same block. Yeah. Anyway, so I parked underneath the Joseph Smith Memorial building. But as I was driving up, I looked over at Temple Square and it was unrecognizable to me. Like oh, yeah. the tabernacle's there and the assembly hall is there. And then you could just see clear through over to the conference center. Everything else is just completely raised to the ground and flattened, and everything is just in disarray and and under construction. So I like it's not a it's not not an excuse to have a limited because I'm sure parking is limited. I'm sure mobility, like the ability to physically walk from one place to another, and I think that's the big one. Like on and around sessions, Temple Square is yeah. has been severely limited. So, like you know, that's I mean, it is a viable excuse, but yeah, but like I said, it's interesting that on top of that, they they kind of 
ignored and forgot to mention that. Oh yeah, and there's still a global pandemic <laughs> that's raging throughout the world, especially <laughs> in Utah and Idaho. Um, so yeah. Um, I know we've run long. We had a handful of interesting BYU stories, but we don't have time for you know what? cover cover another time. Or maybe we'll, let's hold a special session, Jeff. We'll make it. We'll make this week a twofer. I'm 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 game if you are. Stop it, Jared. <laughs> Stop it. You sure you don't want to talk about even the one that you put up there? Okay, we don't have to. So I I just don't think I, I want to, but I don't think we have the time to give it. We're at like, an hour and twenty. So yeah, yeah like yeah. I, I I if we were going to talk about and I'll, and that one also I think like ties directly into like three other stories that are, that are pending as well. And so I don't want to like, just, you know, brush it off and say, here's what happened. And we're not going to talk about it. I feel like the, all of those stories deserve some attention. So if you all can right. fit them in next week, do, if not, I'm up for a special episode whenever you, whenever you want to Jeff, the, the special session, just more of, more of a, we had to do this more like Joe Rogan, man, where we just go on for like three hours and don't, I don't want to do anything more like Joe Rogan, Jeff, Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless I get to star in a sitcom with Steven Root, then, then I would like to be more like Joe, Joe Rogan. Yeah. It's funny Steven to think Root. about his, uh, Steven Root's great news radio. What a classic. What a strange little program that was. I love it. It's so good. Anyway. Strange little program. Anyway, folks, uh, speaking of Joe Rogan, though, I said it last week. You know, leave, he uses Spotify, and so do we. You can leave us uh, at least a star <laughs> review on there if you're a Spotify listener. But leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please become a supporter on Patreon, patreon.com slash Mormons, and be part of the team that makes Twin possible. You find folks over there so charitable, so giving, so kind, so loving, um, and we're, we really appreciate it. So uh, thanks for taking the time to tune in, everybody. Jared, thanks for being here, man. It's good to see you. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate the discussion. So uh, until we meet again, everybody, this has been another edition of This Week in Mormons. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Have a good week. Bye-bye.